Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. So, anything new in the news? Gosh. All I can think of is that Maureen McGovern song from the Poseidon Adventure. Okay, I think we're going to hear There's this. got to be a morning after. Do I you didn't know that? that song. I actually don't know that song. Yeah, the Poseidon Adventure, one of my favorite films of childhood, a big disaster movie with people like Ernest Borgnine well, and, and even- Shelley Winters. <laughs> <laughs> and those are people I know because I was only allowed to watch old movies as a kid. Anyway, I think that most of America has a election hangover, but some people are feeling worse than others. Is that a fair assessment? And some people are feeling downright good. Maybe it's the hair of the dog, who knows? But a lot of people are trying to make sense of what happened in this wild and woolly 2016 election cycle, where many people were left very late at night or early in the morning, scratching their heads, wondering, how did this happen? What went wrong? for Hillary Clinton and what went right for Donald Trump. And I think for Donald Trump, this may feel like being the dog who catches the truck because his campaign on election day did not expect to win. The RNC's modeling jived with all the public polling and private polling. They gave him a one in five chance. Exactly. That said that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president by a narrow but comfortable margin. And of course, all of the experts, all the prognosticators were dead wrong. And so we learned something new every time. And I think many people were gobsmacked. I like that word. Don't That's you? a gobsmacked, great word. Uh, as the night went on. And we wanted to understand, how did this happen? Is there any historical precedent for this kind of upset? And we decided we would talk to one of the smartest historians we know, who happens to be just a wonderful, wonderful person as well. How do you know Doris? I know Doris because she was actually a young professor whose student, whose favorite student, I have been told, was my dad. And so I met her as a kid, and I've always been, of course, an enormous fan of her work. Team of Rivals, of course, has gotten a lot of attention, but she also wrote an amazing book that I highly recommend about the Roosevelts called No Ordinary Time, about Franklin and Eleanor in the White House during World War II. She has just an extraordinary ability to bring history to life and to make it relevant to whatever the times are that we're living in. Lest anyone think we're talking about Doris Day of Sarah Sarah fame, we're actually talking about my favorite historian, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Doris, I'm so happy to see you and so excited to break it all down with you. 
I'm really glad to see you. It's been a long time. We have a long history together. We do. We do. We worked together at NBC back in the day. And of course, I still follow you religiously and admire you so much. And if there was one person I wanted to talk to, and I think Brian feels the same way, to make sense of what we've experienced as a country and the results of this election, it was you because of your perspective and because I think of your decency, honestly, as a person, it's been traumatic, I think, for the country. I'm getting kind of verklempt talking about it, surprisingly. Um, what happened here? You know, it's funny, all through these last months, people keep asking me as an historian, how did we get here? As if I have answers because of the past. And I think part of it is that one of the things that changed over this period of time was that the primaries have taken total precedence over the conventions. If the party leaders had been given the power to choose their candidate this year, the Republican Party would probably not have chosen Mr. Trump. Indeed, the party was fractured, and many of them went away from him, but they had given up that control. They didn't even hold the number of superdelegates that the Democrats had who could have chosen and did choose Hillary. So it's partly that because we allowed the party system for good or for ill early on to have 16 people in it and Trump was able to get a piece of it and do everything unconventionally and make us not understand things. Social media made a huge difference that Trump had access to the television and the media in a way that no other candidate ever has. Whoever could just call up a show and have his little picture on there and make the news every day with stories and with comments that would have been a gaffe for anybody else would have meant the end of the race. And instead, it just kept him in the news until the next thing he said. And also, there's a group of people, a large group, as it turns out, larger than we might have thought, who feel that America has passed them by, not just economically, maybe, but socially and culturally. And it reminds me of the turn of the 20th century, when the Industrial Revolution had so shaken up our economy that people were moving from farms to cities and immigration was coming in in great numbers. There was a huge gap between the rich and the poor. The pace of life had sped up, so they said there was nervous disease all over the country because things were moving too quickly. There were tabloid newspapers finally are telling about horrors all around the world instead of just knowing what you're living with domestically and how that's been exponentially talked about today. Right? It sounds eerily similar when you talk about all those circumstances at the turn of the century, doesn't it? And I think that's when, at the turn of the century, we had populists, we had demagogues, because when people are anxious and vulnerable, they want some simple answer. They want a story that can solve their problems. So at the beginning, Williams Jennings Bryan was able to get huge majorities of people going for him simply because he said, if we change from gold to silver, that'll end us. It'll make everything fine. And a lot of farmers and rural people followed him. They felt that the cities were dens of iniquity. And so there's a sense now that we've separated again between rural and city. When you look at that map and you see the red areas, and especially even in the blue states, that there were red counties um, that were more rural areas, I think there's a sense among people living in the rural areas, people who've lost their jobs, people who once had a feeling of a middle-class background and they now feel they're being squeezed and immigrants are coming in, and technology and globalization have changed things, and the pace of life is moving too quickly for them, they want an answer. And I think Trump provided a narrative, I will make America great again, which probably meant to them not just great international terms, but great the way we once knew it, nostalgically. We'll be the center of the world. We will have those kind of jobs again. We will fight globalization and somehow focus on us. And I've always thought that the most important word in Trump's slogan is actually again, because it's it's backward looking. And for people uh, whose lives were better 20 or 30 or 50 years ago, that was enormously appealing. Of course, for the coalition of the ascendant, the young people, the minorities, the professional women who voted in large numbers for Hillary Clinton, they don't want to turn the clock back because they were worse off. So you have this profound divide in the country between people who want to look back and people who are eager to move forward. Nostalgia and promise, really, in a way, right? And somehow he was able to combine both of those. I mean, that's what made it work. I mean, he is looking backward and saying, we can be that country we once were, not just in terms of China and other powers, but that country that had a manufacturing base, that country that gave good jobs to people who came from working class backgrounds and didn't have to go to college to be part of a service economy. And yet 
that a, the world, the economy is different from that now. And it's not necessarily anyone's fault. Technology has done things. Globalization has done things and it has its own advantages as well as its problems. And yet somehow by looking backward and then saying, make America great again, he's making people feel under him, not even just a divided government, but under him, things are going to change. It's going to be so impossible to deliver on many of those things. You can't bring some of those manufacturing jobs back. Many of them have more. A vast majority of them have been replaced by automation, not by trade. And I wonder if they're going to have, as many people who voted for Brexit did, a little buyer's remorse when they see that he is not quite the messiah he's painted himself to be. Yeah, there were times, I think, in the campaign when he said, I alone can do that. In this system of government, it requires three branches. It requires the mobilization of the people. And promises do matter. These people assumed there was an emotional connection to him because he would deliver. I mean, in the old days, I remember JFK had made a series of promises in the 1960 campaign, and he finally was counting them up after the campaign was over. And he got like to 72 promises or something. He said, oh, my God, what are we going to do about these? And one of them was an executive order to end federal discrimination in federal housing projects. And because he'd made that promise, in fact, he made it in a speech on civil rights that my husband had written. And after he saw this thing, he said, who wrote this? And Ted Soren says, I didn't write it. And so Dick Goodwin just remains quiet. And then Kennedy says, well, I guess nobody wrote it. But nonetheless, there was pressure from the civil rights community to make good on that promise. And he did issue an executive order. It's called With the Stroke of a Pen, one of his great achievements in civil rights. The worry I have today is even if you make these promises, everything is so moving forward and you forget what people said in the past. Will they really hold him to these promises or did they just emotionally feel he's going to be on our side? What I think was interesting is someone I read, you know, you read a million things on your phone these days, but that too many critics took him literally and not seriously, that when he used certain rhetoric it was really emblematic of a problem or illustrative of a problem. So not that he really, really wanted to build a wall, but that was symbolic of wanting to get a a handle on illegal immigration. Although it was easy to take him literally because he said so many times that he's going to build not just a wall, but a big, beautiful wall. He described it. It was (laughs) going to rise like nine or 10 feet in the air. And we saw actually just earlier today during your interview with Ben Carson, one of his strongest supporters, some backpedaling away from the wall already. Well, it could be uh, electronic. Yeah, there there could be fences. Control, yeah. And so it's a great question. What can Trump, even in a unified Republican Washington, actually get done? And it's going to require the cooperation, not just of the bureaucracy, but also of a party that distrusts him, that barely supported him. I mean, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell were kind of in the witness protection program during most of this <laughs> yeah. campaign. And so, how much how much will his supporters demand that he do these things? Or is it good enough that he's going to D.C. and he's going to mess things up and kind of create a little bedlam? Is that really all they want? It's very interesting. I mean, maybe that part of what they felt is two things. One is he's on our side. That's the most important thing is, is the person on your side versus on the side of these others, the people who are rigging the system, the establishment, the people who have all the power, the people who have all the money. Incredibly, he was able to position himself on their side. And then the second thing is, is he against the system as it's now described? And you're right. He may just be able to go there and and just ruffle things up and they may not hold him to specific promises um, because there were so many of them that it's impossible to imagine. The one area he might be able to move forward on, which I think Hillary's talked about as well, is infrastructure. I mean, if we could rebuild our streets and our bridges and repair things that need repairing, those are those kind of jobs that would come back, at least for a short period of time. And why didn't Obama do more? He, there was an infrastructure bill, wasn't there? He's but it tried just... hard many times, and you know, like a lot of his proposals, as soon as he got behind it, even though it was previously a Republican idea, a lot of Republican congressional leaders uh, viewed it as against their political interests 
to support it. And in fact, you did a, a wonderful interview for people who haven't read it with President Obama quite recently that's in Vanity Fair magazine, which I'm sure many Trump supporters are reading. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, can you shed a little light on what you learned as President Obama reflected on his eight years in power? And of course, that was done before he knew that you know, much of his uh, legacy would be undone by a president-elect Donald Trump. Yeah, I think when I was talking to him, there was a real sense of of feeling good about his term coming to an end, the popularity being up, the approval rating up, and, and looking forward to another life after this, knowing he'd left behind, as he puts it, achievements that hopefully the next president could take the baton on and make greater. So this is going to be a big thing for him as well. I mean, if Obamacare were to be repealed, if the party in the Republican side continues to have power since he lost it during his time. But when I saw him, he was just full of excitement and full of vim. I wonder how different this interview might have been if it had taken place now rather than when it did, because this really is a blow to his legacy, isn't it? The defeat of Hillary Clinton. Did he talk at all about any mistakes that were made in terms of Obamacare? Because I think that was one issue that worked so against him in his campaign. I have many friends who are are covered by Obamacare and their premiums skyrocketed. You know, I have single moms who are paying, you know, their premium started $400 a month and now they're paying $1,200 a month. And they're self-employed. I mean, it's really hard for a lot of these people. Does he think maybe it was too much too fast? You know, I'm not sure. I wish I had asked him more about that because I think not only the way it was administered and whether or not there were mistakes made that could have been prevented if they thought it through more carefully. And you do have a chance when a law is out there to then improve it and change it. Um, and if there had been a Hillary administration, they could have done that. They could have improved it. And now maybe there's going to be that desire to replace it. Although I don't think that's going to be so easy to do. I think it's going to be really hard to take away from people who already are having their pre-existing conditions taken care of, to take away from people who have health insurance that they didn't before. But there'll certainly be some impulse to that, which I'm sure will make him very sad because this is a huge part of his legacy. The place that I wish I'd talked to him about more was he finally gave a good speech on health care in September after that summer when the people in the town halls had talked about death panels and turned the country against health care. Oh, well, you know what? The members of Congress were so ill-equipped to discuss it. They weren't familiar. I remember watching Arlen Specter who knew a lot about healthcare. You know, he himself had cancer and very smart guy. And I remember him being completely flummoxed by questions from the audience about the bill, which, by the way, was so complex. And I thought, well, this is a disaster. The people are out there talking to the public about it don't even understand it. I think you're so right. I mean, in, in order to communicate with the public something complex, you have to simplify. I think that's what any of the leaders that I've studied would say, simplify, simplify, simplify. You needed like four or five points. That's what this is about. I remember there was a moment when FDR was given a speech draft in which he said, we want a more exclusive America. And he switched it to, we want an America in which no one is left out. Think of the difference in that. I mean, that's just the kind of language that you need to figure out. When Lincoln was talking to young lawyers, he would talk about the importance of just get to the core of the matter. Tell a story, stories people will remember. And you have to tell a narrative, whatever the policy issues you're talking about. And I guess in some extent, to go back to the Trump's campaign, he told a story about America that resonated with people. We're going to make it great again. We're going to go back to what we were. And it's going to be even greater. And, and I'm going to give you your jobs back or I'm going to create jobs and build a wall and get those immigrants out of your hospitals and schools. And, and, and people in times of vulnerability are susceptible to that kind of talk. Lincoln actually gave a talk when he was 28 years old at the Lyceum in which he warned that in times of trouble, there is a tendency to look for a strong man and that in those moments, you have to remember what America is founded on, a separation of powers, constitution, declaration of independence, because otherwise you're going to give your power over to somebody who's going to use your anxiety to take it in directions you may not even want it to go. Well, do you think Donald Trump is an example of that? Well, the only you know, the only hopefulness I have, and this is just because I tend to be an optimist, is that there's a confidence level that will come into him now 
that might be a real confidence. I mean, he has won the presidency of the United States. When you saw him lash back whenever he was criticized during the campaign, it suggested a lack of confidence. I mean, a truly confident person doesn't have to lash back every time they're criticized. Like there was a moment when they asked Hillary in that third debate, is it really okay for a politician to be two-faced? And because she had said one thing on the campaign trail, well, another she talked in about the public Wall Street Journal, too, yeah. and then she mentioned Lincoln's movie, and that you could be principled and pragmatic to get the Thirteenth Amendment. But what I was thinking of when Lincoln was once charged with being two-faced, and he had enough internal confidence, he said, "If I had two faces, do you think I'd be wearing this face?" I remember <laughs> I mean, it's that. It's that kind of confidence that you need to stand up to criticism. Or Eleanor Roosevelt said when people criticized her, she just figured they were against her ideas. She didn't take it personally. So the real question and the hope for Trump, if this whole newfound confidence has come into him because of this, will that change what must have been a lack of confidence? Nobody who lashes out that way is a truly confident person. That's what we saw on the campaign trail. I don't know whether this will change that. And that's the one hope. Maybe there's a a, a deeper side that can come out. <laughs> Are there examples in history of presidents who, upon encountering the awesome powers of that office— the genuflection that often happens around them become more humble and more inclusive Hard as they go believe. on? <laughs> That's a really, really important question. I mean, I think what we have examples of are we might not have known the strengths that some of these candidates had before they became president, but they had them in them already. I mean, for example, FDR was not a humble man before the polio, and somehow that polio made him feel connected to other people to whom fate had dealt an unkind hand. And by the time he became president, he was a different man than he would have been had he gotten it a decade earlier and never had polio. But that had already happened before the presidency. People thought Lincoln was just, you know, a storyteller who told smutty jokes and had no education. He was already Abraham Lincoln before he became president. People just didn't know that. So I, I don't know that the presidency itself can make somebody bigger than they are. But sometimes a crisis can bring out in a person something that was hidden there and that was a part of them. And and I guess that's what you've got to hope, that when the mantle of the presidency comes. I, I mean, I thought about that for Hillary Clinton. I mean, had she won, I just had this feeling that being the first female president was going to give her such a haunting sense of excitement and responsibility that the defensiveness that she had sometimes shown would be worn away because she didn't need to be defensive anymore. She'd done something great. So I guess if I'm thinking that about her, then you have to at least accord the possibility to him of the same thing. We're going to take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsors and from listeners like you. I feel like I'm on PBS. That's right after this. Hi, Brian and Katie. This is Nicole. How am I going to spend my time after the election? Homework. Doing homework to be the best damn journalist I can. So, yeah. <laughs> hey, Brian and Katie. Hey, my name's Lee. To answer your question, what I'm going to do for the rest of the time when the election's over, well, I think the smartest thing is to... um to see uh, what this, our new president will do for this country. For myself, I was not born in this country. I was born raised in China, and I uh, moved to this country when I was 17. And um, so as the, as the immigrants coming to this country, that I'm eternally grateful about what the United States has given to me, and this country is going to um, continue to help us and teach us and guide us um, to the future success of our lives. All right. Thank you, Brian. Hi, my name's Hannah, and I'm from New York. Um, I think that once the election is over, my attention is going to be completely and totally shifted to focusing on the Gilmore Girls revival that's happening on Black Friday. I'm so excited. Have a good one. Bye. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. And we're back with Doris Kearns Goodwin. I just love talking to you. First of all, I like your voice, Doris. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about Hillary Clinton. You know, because on the face of it, she's so experienced, so competent, so intelligent. In many ways, I think the real rock star of the relationship and had to sublimate her ambitions to help her husband by moving to Arkansas. What do you think happened in her campaign? Was she too guarded, too cautious? Were there really legitimate things for people to be upset about in terms of her judgment or decisions she's made in the past? How would you assess it? Well, I mean, I think two things happened. She ran at a time when being a politician, especially on the Republican side, was not considered a positive thing. I mean, in most of our country, experience in political life should make you feel good that the person has served at different levels of the government. They're going to bring that growing experience into the presidency. And yet, the attitude toward politicians and public figures in the last couple decades has so diminished because of the gridlock, because of what they do in Washington, because of spending so much time on fundraising. So the very strengths she had to bring into this election became weaknesses. Became weaknesses. The fact that she'd been in government for a long time, the fact that she'd been fighting for issues for a long time made it seem like he could say to her, well, you've been out there for so long. How come things haven't changed monumentally? And they had changed. She'd made a lot of change happen. Um, she hadn't suddenly brought jobs back. She hadn't made America great again the way he was putting it. So she was given a negative ride for having been in public life for a long time. And then you keep wondering, what if the email thing had not happened? Because it stalked her from the beginning of the campaign to the end. And if she hadn't had that, her natural defensiveness was exacerbated as a result of that. Her willingness or unwillingness to deal with the press I mean, not having press conferences. She's so spontaneously able to talk about any issue in the world. She's so gifted. You know, I've seen her speak where she walks around a stage with no notes and her presentation is absolutely seamless. I mean, I'm in awe. Her husband can do that too, but she's quite remarkable. And you're right. She can talk fluently about any subject. And by the way, when she allows herself to, she can be very, as you know, warm and engaging and have a good sense of humor and laugh heartily and just be normal. No, I mean, the person that we know who know her is a different person than people perceived her on the campaign. And the question again is, if the email thing hadn't happened, which immediately put that girdle on her. It's like a girdle was around her the whole time. That sounds very uncomfortable. <laughs> I haven't heard the word girdle in about 30 years, Doris. I used to tease Obama because the idea for one of his signature ways of having the square deal or the new deal or the fair deal was the new foundation. And I teased him that used to be a girdle foundation. Girdle. <laughs> I didn't think that was such a great idea. But anyway, I think it just constricted her because then she didn't hold press conferences. The press felt 
felt she was being entitled. Then that whole narrative develops that she thinks she deserves this. She's not on the rope lines in the same way. There was no reason in the world that she had to be afraid she would be asked a question she wouldn't know the answer to, except she would be asked about the email. So, But it's she just, should have had one answer. She could have done this so just, long and, ago. And just kept and, repeating it that after a while people then they're would not stop keep asking. asking. You're right. Ultimately, she had an answer, which was pretty quick and efficient and effective, but it took her about a year to develop right. it. And in the meantime, there was all of this gnashing of teeth and toing and froing, and it was very hard for her to get to, I made a mistake, I learned from it. As president, I wouldn't do it again. And I think a lot of it was, she didn't really think she made a mistake. And so it was very hard for her to say that. And I think she felt that it was so taken out of proportion. I mean, all along, she probably had a feeling, I really don't think this affected national security, which it may well turn out that it didn't, you know, given the FBI's final looking through it, and then just felt it was unfair for her to be argued against this way. But it doesn't matter. If that's what they're going after you at, you have to satisfy their demands, and you have to tell them what's going to end the story. And somehow that became a problem, and then it got back into the other times when she seemed to be not quite telling the truth about right. Whitewater or it kind of Foster. It kind of I underscored mean, a narrative about her, about sort of this penchant for secrecy, bordering on paranoia, and making bad judgments. But I think that even voters, and even I'm sometimes confused— was what she did really bad? You know, I was on television the other night and somebody compared it to Watergate. Um, well, Donald that Trump is just, compared yeah, well, the, he said yeah. it was worse, yeah. Yeah. It was worse than Watergate. Than Watergate. Yeah. I mean, that somebody, is, that would be the president-elect. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carl Bernstein, who knows a thing or two about Watergate, said, just to put this in perspective, Watergate was about a criminal presidency that started the first day that Richard Nixon took office and lasted until the day that he was forced out of power by his fellow Republicans. There is no comparison Absolutely. between doing a kind of slightly worse version of what Colin Powell did by using a personal email, and, and Watergate. No, I agree totally. I mean, and I think that's what must have been so frustrating for her and for the team, that the sense of equivalency, as they finally did talk about, this is just crazy that this has become the major issue to be a metaphor for all the things that we don't like about her. And then WikiLeaks happened, and I think people conflated sort of those emails, and it just gave Donald Trump another chance to say the word emails right. over and over again. But it's not as though people viewed Trump as honest and trustworthy himself. Why was his, there such a double standard with his foundation and many of the things that he did far worse than anything that Hillary Clinton did on the campaign trail or during her her years in public service. And that's, I think, what was so hard for her, because she felt that double standard. Is it partly because the people who didn't like her were able to get to the news media? Is it because there was an anti-woman sentiment in this thing? Is it because it, it fed into a narrative of her? But it certainly fed into a narrative that was developing about him, but it was a new narrative about him. We never knew about him before. So we're suddenly learning about, you know, his foundation versus her foundation. But the contrast between what we think we know his foundation did and what she did, again, is is is, is crazy. Maybe it's because it, they were looking for stories about Hillary Clinton. And because she had been around for so long, there wasn't anything really new and fresh. I think it's So connect- this filled the vacuum for kind of uh, this notion of equal coverage. I think it's connected to that, to the media's desire always to have a sort of moral equivalence. Uh, Democrats say the sky is red. Republicans say the sky is blue. Experts disagree. You don't pay a price for that. But in addition to that, it, it went to something deeper about the election, which was the voters wanted change. That was the number one quality in the polling, to the extent we can rely on the polling, voters were looking for. And and these stories, I think, cemented Hillary Clinton in the kind of corrupt status quo of Washington. Mm -hmm. And Trump's scandals didn't mean that he wouldn't be a change agent. And more than anything else, a plurality of voters wanted change. And they were New York City scandals anyway. They weren't kind of in the heart of Washington and the political establishment. They were personal scandals right. rather so, than policy Right, ones. exactly. What do, you, what do you think about the fact that she was the first woman candidate of her party? 
Yeah, I mean, I kept thinking that had she won, that it was going to be huge, as Trump would say, the next morning huge. after she won. You can't I mean, pronounce the H. It's going to be huge. Oh, okay, I'll do it again. <laughs> huge. And then you've got to work on Gina with like a G instead of a C-H. I mean, I, you know, I predicted, obviously wrongly, that the morning after people would realize what a big thing this was, that 240 years after our founding, when so many other nations have had their first female leader, we finally had a female president. And the whole idea of her being a female got overshadowed in a positive way by everything else in the campaign. And I thought it would finally come to fruition when she won, if she had won. And now looking back on it, I guess we're going to have to sort out to what extent there was feelings about a woman being president. I mean, I still think we've gone a huge way and that a person could become a woman president next time around even. I, I'd like to believe that this had to do with the particular situation of this campaign, just as it did when she was against Obama, that she might have won that time had there not been the first African-American. Having that, said that, you still wonder about implicit bias, you don't still you? Wonder, and you still wonder, wonder about that. sort of the undercurrents of sexism just right below the surface that somebody's not even aware of in terms of how they view someone and judge them characterize them, and pigeonhole them. I think you're right. And I think it goes back to what we were saying before about Trump having succeeded in telling people, we're going to make that older America come back again, and it'll be even greater. Women are making strides in every aspect of American life right now, right? They're going to college more than men are. They're going to med school. They're going to law school. And they're working. In bigger numbers than men. Right, in bigger numbers than men. And to some extent, and they, they have power in their family relationships they never had before. And for some people, that's disorienting. I remember at the end of World War II when the men came back from the armed forces and the women had been working in the factories, and suddenly a man will say, you've been writing a check? Who taught you how to write a check? You know, or, or you know, you've become sort of a giant tree while I was gone. You were a little flower before I left. And it created a lot of tensions between men and women. And I think still women's strides today, which are the future, just as minority registration and minority voting and minority demographic changes are the future. Um, that's that's hard for some people. And I think that's under, it might not even just be misogyny toward Hillary necessarily, but for a changing America right. when there's still, you're still looking at the time maybe when you had a job and your wife is taking care of you and the kids are at home and there's not divorces in the same way there was. Right. And society's changed it's and, and people of feel patriarchy, scared. I think. It does. And, I think so, you know, too. I was thinking of the other day, don't ask me why. Why are strong women called ball, ball busters or ball breakers, right? Well, we talked about this in 2008 when Hillary nutcrackers were sold at airports. And, oh, I forgot and about that. Right. And I rush. said to her, I said, Hillary Clinton, why do you have a nutcracker and Sarah Palin has an action figure. <laughs> and by the way, if the racist equivalent of that were designed for Barack Obama, there would have been an overwhelming national outcry. But I think sexism is yeah, pervasive and acceptable in a different way. And by the way, it's not as though women came out for Hillary Clinton in a way that African-Americans, for instance, came out for Barack Obama. She won women by no more than Donald Trump won men. Donald Trump won white women uh, in the election. And so how do you explain why there was no kind of rally around the flag effect? Wasn't the it the trustworthiness? I mean, nominee? I think we've talked about the trustworthiness and that women were put off by this narrative that was out in the ether that kept being emphasized and reemphasized as much as men. And I think they were suspicious of her. And maybe, you know, it had to do with the past, too. I mean, all the things she went through during the Clinton administration, and there were lots of scandals during that period of time, which may not have been her fault, but they're there, and she's part of that. And there was a sense that if she comes into this office, these things are all going to keep going on and on and on. And the, and Trump made use of that and made that part of the ad. So you had a feeling that, Let's just start afresh, even though this guy is hardly fresh, but start afresh with somebody. Well, and yet, fatigue was a real thing, don't you was. think, Doris? I mean, they've been in public life, as we've heard oft repeated by Donald Trump, 30 years. And it's very unusual, is it not? Well, you could tell us as a historian, for a family dynasty to go on for that long, I mean, the Roosevelt's didn't, I guess, if you separate right. Teddy, did. you know, yeah. the Kennedys. Did, did. Well, you had but, Teddy but, and Robert, right? But 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 
Robert, tragically, of course, was assassinated. And Teddy never quite reached that level of, you know, he never became president. He never became president. No, you know, it's interesting to look back to the spring before this all began. We thought we'd be pitting two dynasties against one another, Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton. And indeed, had the party leaders had control, if it had been the old days when the conventions chose, they would have chosen those two people. I mean, Bush was way ahead in public opinion polls and endorsements and, you know, in in the superdelegates fundraising. And so was she. And then we were worried that there'd be this... Uh, you know, frustration with always having the same people come back again and, and again. And indeed there was. So I guess there was. I think that's right. I've and never seen so many big D Democrats more suspicious of little d democracy than in the aftermath of this election. They're feeling like they don't recognize their fellow Americans. There's a sense in blue urban professional America of a big gulf of, of, of really two Americas. Are there historical examples of us pulling ourselves together and bridging those divides. I think you've raised a really important point, which is that the polarization is not just political right now. It's social, it's economic, it's the diversity of the country. If you're living on the coasts and you're used to living with people who are of different races, religions, colors, um, sexual orientation, you've gotten accustomed to it. They're not the other anymore. They're part of your neighborhood. They're the kids your kids go to school with. But if you're living in those rural areas and you're more remote, then those people become others. And that's the really scary thing in a democracy because one of the things Teddy Roosevelt said is that the most important part of a democracy is fellow feeling, that you can understand people's point of view who are different from your own. And to know that, a politician has to be able to go into those areas, maybe even self-consciously at first, but then it becomes part of them to really figure out how other people live. And because of the way we've divided our country right now, and because of the way the media is divided, you're only watching the program you might want to watch. You're shopping in the stores where your fellow people store. I mean, some of these sociological studies are scary. Then, Then people are just isolating themselves away from the diversity of the country. And the diversity of the country is the future. That is America. And so the more we can get people moving together and and living together and seeing other sides, I mean, it was so hopeful, the rights that that sexual orientation got during this period of time. That's made me feel we were moving faster than I thought we were. But I think that's really, really threatening to some people. And I think Tom it was Friedman more threatening our, than we realized. Our, our podcast and talked about this feeling of stuckness that people had and sort of how threatening some of these rapid cultural and, you know, social changes have been to people who are more traditional. And, you know, I'm doing a documentary right now on gender and how, you know, gender nonconforming people and the fact that transgender people are much more comfortable kind of going beyond the binary. And I was saying to Brian, oh my God, you know, this is another (laughs) thing that's very hard for even progressive minded people to kind of grasp. People, I think, who are not exposed to this, who don't know anybody who's experiencing this, are going to think, oh my God, this is absolute insanity. No, I think change is harder for any of us. I mean, you think about it, it's it's a difficult thing when you've gotten into your rituals, your way of thinking, relationships within a family, and, and then it gets changed. And I mean, that's what they said at the turn of the 20th century, that people were suffering from nervous anxiety and depression more than ever before. And they figured it was just that they couldn't cope with the changing America. So I think that's what we're feeling right now. I, I think, think that, also exacerbated by technology. Oh, you without know, these a cultural question, changes, and question. then you have, you know, I mean, I'm addicted to my iPhone. It's sick. If I can't find it, I completely panic. And our phones also filter information to us that reinforces what we already believe right, and accentuates those beliefs. So it used to be, of course, in history, we would agree on a set of facts and then disagree on a set of opinions. Now we have different facts. Right, right. And, and you don't have, like in the old days when there were three networks, you could listen objectively to what the facts were, and then they might be shading differently. But now you, you're not even getting the same facts in what well, you're listening to. Well, now you have to. fake news organizations have, right. that are just feeding I mean, you the, stuff the, that's the, completely made up. Right. And how can you tell the difference? Because there's so much of it. But now you can say anything, and you have access to the bully pulpit. I mean, the, when Teddy Roosevelt used the word bully pulpit, he meant that the president has a peculiar power to mobilize public support because he's president, and he's got that 
foghorn in a certain sense of the president. Everybody has a bully pulpit now, and you can't even distinguish one person's thoughts from another. And you can choose which bully pulpit you want to listen to, whether it's Rachel Maddow's or Sean Hannity's. What do you think is the future of the Republican Party and the future of the Democratic Party? Obviously, that's a big Megillah of a question, Doris, (laughs) but I think that's what people are wondering, especially with sort of the Bernie Sanders people to the left of Hillary Clinton. And then, of course, you've got moderate Republicans who, you know, as Brian said, were in the witness protection program when it came to the Trump candidacy. So how does this all settle down? I mean, I think the even deeper question is, what is the future of parties in general? I mean, parties' power used to come from having an influence over who the nominee of the party would be. That was their major function at those conventions. And especially now, as we've seen with Mr. Trump this time, he didn't need the party for advertising. He didn't need the party for funding. He didn't need the party to get on television. He could do it as an entrepreneur. So the question will be, will parties themselves have the strength that they did way back in the 19th century? In the 19th century, you identified with a party as you did with your religion. You know, you were a Democrat or you were a Republican or you'd been a Whig before that. That was part of who you were. You read the partisan newspapers. You didn't read what the other people were saying. I mean, in the in the thing that would be written about the Lincoln-Douglas debates, in the Republican newspaper, they would say Lincoln was so great and people carried him off the, off the stands in their arms. In the Democratic newspaper, they'd say he fell on the floor. He was so bad. It was embarrassing that people had to get him out of well, there. Well, that sounds pretty familiar, <laughs> yes, actually. Exactly. So but we're going the, back to the future. But the the difference is, that's right, that at least you're not seeing it every night on television. You're just reading it in your own partisan press. So little kids are not being coarsened by the di- They may have said bad things about each other then, too, which they did. But little kids aren't being coarsened by the dialogue the way we have this year. But I think both parties are going to have to go through a soul-searching. I mean, even though Trump is one, is it clear that he's really a Republican? And is he going to bear the standard of the Republican Party? And how's he going to get along with those people? And the Democrats are going to have to figure out what happened to their traditional base, which was the white working class base. I mean, some people have said they discarded that base. I'm not sure that's true. I think technology undid that base in a certain sense. I think that base discarded them. Yeah, it could well be. So you, you said at the beginning of this conversation, you're an optimist. Are you still an optimist? Because I think there are a lot of people out there who are really worried about the country and are, you know, pretty depressed about the state of affairs. I guess the only way you can feel optimistic right now is that these peaceful transitions of powers we've seen in even worse times. I mean, when you think about Jefferson coming in way back after Adams, the first time that a new party had come into being, people thought it was the end of the world to lose the Federalists. And he comes in and he gives this great inaugural, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists, and differences of opinion don't have to be differences of principle. And he became a very strong president. And you think about even Teddy Roosevelt in 1912 when the Republican Party was fractured, and it looked like it would never come back together again. And it it did lose the election in 12 and 16. But then in the 20s, it, it wins three elections in a row. So we do heal these things. Somehow, there are cycles in history. The most worrisome thing I have about the future is, are our best young people wanting to enter public life? And the fact of having seen people in the last couple decades that you don't feel are your heroes in Washington, in the Congress, because they can't get anything done, you know they have to be spending a huge amount of their time dialing for money. You know that your private life is going to be exposed now by the media if you enter public life. So people that might have wanted to go into politics in the old days are not doing it necessarily. Because we didn't have a huge bench for this presidential campaign when you think about it, right? Not at all. And I mean, there should have been yeah. so many people that you wanted to know would well, have been the Well, the Republicans did have a lot of well, people. Well, it was a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, we should state that. But ultimately, I think we ended up with people thinking, is this the best we have? Right. I think that's exactly right. So what I keep hoping for is that Maybe there'll be some national service program that starts because I think one of the things that made politics work better in the past was that a lot of our politicians had been in World War II together, the Korean War, and they knew what it was like to have a common mission with a common purpose and to work across racial party lines. And if we had some national service program for young people so that they were brought out of these silos in which they're now living and work together, and then maybe that translates into wanting to be in public service in the future, because something has to make us feel that politics is an honorable vocation again. We can't just think outsiders are the only people who can do it. We're a democracy. We have to believe in our public figures. 
Doris Kearns Goodwin. How do you keep all those facts, figures, and dates in that pretty little head of yours? <laughs> it's just history. <laughs> Ask me anything else about science or math, and it would be gone. It would never be even in there. That's why there's a lot of room in there because or the baseball. rest isn't there. We could ask you about baseball. baseball. I can know about baseball. Anyway, thank you so much You're for so coming welcome. by. What really fun. fun to talk to you. Maybe you'll come back after Donald Trump is in office for a little while. I can't even believe I'm saying that sentence <laughs> right now, actually, and see what kind of president. He seems to be becoming. I would be glad to talk to you anytime, you guys. Thank you. So, of course, we want to thank Gianna Palmer for producing the show and Jared O'Connell for engineering it. Thanks also to Mark Phillips for our terrific theme music. And remember, you can email us at comments at currickpodcast.com or find me on social media, too. I'm Katie Couric, at Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram, and katie.couric on Snapchat. I'm so hip. Best of all, you can rate and review us on iTunes. We'd really appreciate if you would do that. And don't forget to subscribe, too. And our question for next week is, what's your biggest hope and biggest fear about a Trump presidency? And keep it snappy, people. We don't have all the time in the world to listen to these things. Leave us a message at 929-224-4637. Talk to you next time. Adios. Amigos. As President-elect Trump would say. Hello, Brian. Yo. (laughs) (laughs) From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.